Well, good afternoon all and hello to everyone. It is uh, Thursday afternoon at 4 o'clock Central Daylight Time and I'm Bill Allen calling, uh, talking to you from uh, the downtown area of Tyler, Texas on a warm uh, Texas afternoon. Hope that you are well and all of your family are well and loved ones and hope you are still able to uh, be about your life to some extent. I know this uh, coronavirus has really taken a toll on everyone and everything. And here in Texas, we're seeing uh, some more concerns over the numbers and our governor and other officials continue to be in our prayers as do our national leaders uh, and the rest of our world seeking God's help and mercy and wisdom uh, so that we can continue to get through this. Always there are opportunities for ministry, always there are opportunities to serve and that's no different now, and we see that in a lot of uh, places in a lot of ways. A lot of difficult things going on in our lives, and the lesson today might be especially helpful uh, there because we get to talk about a man who uh, went from being the worst enemy of the church and of uh, God's people uh, to being uh, the greatest advocate that the church uh, would have. Um, and so we get to hear about that story and read through it in that wonderful a passage in Acts chapter 9 and mention the uh, the passages in Acts 22 and Acts 26 uh, as well. And of course, we're talking about Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul. And we've already been introduced to him a little bit uh, because of uh, him being around when Stephen was killed, uh, Stephen's great sermon in Acts uh, chapters uh, 6 and 7, and then uh, the difficulty that um, that we saw uh, with Stephen uh, really coming down on the Jewish uh, leaders around him and them uh, putting him to death by stoning and Saul being there, approving of what they did, watching their clothes, and then from then on being the point man for persecution of the church. And, and that was a, a difficult thing for the church. The persecution went on uh, because of Paul's leadership in that uh, movement. Uh, the disciples had to scatter, all but the apostles had to leave Jerusalem. As we saw last week, they went everywhere preaching the word, Acts chapter 8, verse 4 says. And uh, then in chapter 8, Luke records the, the stories of one of those great servants, uh, Philip. He was one of those seven men chosen, along with Stephen and the others, in Acts chapter 6, to take care of the widows who came from a Hellenistic background still Jews, uh, but uh, more outside of Palestine likely and more from a Greek uh, cultural background. Uh, they were being neglected and so they selected those seven men who seem based on their names to have some connection with that group. Uh, Stephen, of course, a great preacher full of the Spirit, uh, the first Christian martyr in Acts uh, chapter 7 there at the end. And then, um, and then Philip in Acts chapter 8 going into Samaria and baptizing uh, Simon and the other Samaritans that he was able to interact with. We saw that story on Tuesday, a very interesting story of how uh, the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit are passed along at the laying on of the apostles' hands, as is clearly stated in Acts chapter 8, when Peter and John, two apostles, come down from Jerusalem uh, to the uh, Samaritans and are able to pass along that gift. Philip could do all of them, but he couldn't pass them along. But Peter and John could, and the difference is they were apostles. That was their ministry. And Simon, even trying to buy that gift, not just the gifts of being able to do those things, but the gift of being able to pass them along to others, 
on anyone that he would lay his hands, as he said. And Peter, of course, uh, condemning that thought and, and calling on him to repent, and he does, and he asks for their prayers. Uh, so a great story there. And then, of course, uh, Philip being taken by the Spirit uh, to join himself to a chariot of an Ethiopian official who had been to Jerusalem to worship, uh, perhaps a proselyte, perhaps a, a God-fearer who was a part of the Jewish nation and was worshiping God there in Jerusalem, and then on his way back reading from Isaiah 53 and not really understanding what he read and who it was talking about. And so Philip began at that very same scripture, a great place to start in, in Isaiah 53, told him the story about the gospel of Jesus Christ his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection and also the response of faith. Uh, Philip definitely talks to him about uh, believing in that message and repenting of his sins and confessing his faith uh, and uh, being baptized into Jesus Christ for forgiveness of his sins because as they're traveling along, they pass some water, perhaps a small pond or lake or some standing water or something, and, uh, and it's the Ethiopian man who brings up this, this, the possibility of being baptized right then and there and confesses his faith, and Philip baptizes him. They both go into the water. They both come out of the water afterwards, and the man goes on his way rejoicing, uh, and Philip is taken by the Spirit to do more good things in the name of Jesus Christ. So we find that great uh, opportunity for uh, uh, Philip to be able to share the message of Christ with others and to be able to uh, share the baptism of that Ethiopian man. So a great, great uh, blessing that that is and a great opportunity uh, for him to be able uh, to share the gospel there. Um, and then we find, as uh, Jesus had said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you, you will be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem. And they had been in Jerusalem up till then. Uh, perhaps the church was a couple of years old, uh, less than five likely, and, uh, and then they're forced out, and, um, and uh, they go everywhere, though, preaching the word. Jesus had said, my witness is first in Jerusalem, then in the surrounding areas of Judea, that province, uh, a Roman province where uh, Jerusalem and Bethlehem are located, but not just in Judea, in Samaria also, that province directly to the north of Judea and just south of Galilee and then to the end uh, of the world. And that's what the church uh, does. And that's what the church is called to do uh, today. And that's what brings us to Acts chapter 9 and this incredible story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, nice to see some folks joining us. My good friends Lenny and Joe Allard love you so much and are thankful uh, for you always, your encouragement and your prayers. Uh, Larry and Lynn Murphy, wonderful blessings that they are to our church family and their kids and grandkids. Very, uh, very much a part of our uh, active uh, church ministry here, and my friends Eric and Cindy, uh, what a blessing that you are, and so many others. We may find uh, Debbie Spears show up a little bit later. If you do, wish her a happy birthday. It's her birthday today, so happy birthday, uh, Debbie, if you get a chance uh, to watch this sometime. So let's get to it in Acts chapter 9, uh, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, in Acts 9, Luke tells the story, offers the narrative uh, in, in its time, uh, and then later on, Paul will reflect on this in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. He tells his story as he defends himself against some of the authorities of the day. And uh, he also shares some autobiographical passages that describe his own uh, life and work in Galatians 1 and 2 
and Philippians chapter 3, and also especially 1 Timothy 1 that we'll look at perhaps a, a little bit later, depending on how long-winded Bill is to try to get there. Uh, according to Luke and Acts, there were two especially notable uh, conversions, uh, which launched the world mission of the church. We see one in Acts chapter 10, the very next chapter, and that will be Cornelius. And that is significant, as you know, because he is, um, uh, he is the first uh, Gentile converted for the faith, the first non-Jew, and it takes extraordinary measures, just as it did in Acts 2. It took extraordinary measures for them to know that it was no longer uh, the place of uh, becoming Jews, but now it was being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, that was an, that extraordinary gift of the Spirit to the apostles in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 10, it will be the same, and it'll be described that way, that they received the Spirit just as uh, the apostles did in that first event in Acts 2. Why? Because it was such an extraordinary change, uh, something that they had not been practicing for 2,000 years uh, since the time of Abraham. Uh, so that was significant, but there was another, another significant conversion and that is the one that we're reading about today in Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Again, Paul tells the story in his own words as Luke records them in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. Uh, but here in Acts 9, Luke gives the narrative of the transition from Saul of Tarsus uh, to Paul the Christian, and then later the apostle and minister and uh, preacher and missionary and writer of much of the New Testament. What a grand moment uh, this is. So birthday girl has joined us. Happy birthday, Debbie. Uh, and we will just uh, continue on and begin uh, the introduction of Saul. Remember, we saw him in Acts chapter 8 um, at uh, the, the time when Stephen was killed, approving of what was going on and uh, watching the clothes of those who put him to death. And then we see that Saul began to persecute the church. He became the point man for the Jewish leaders. They were only too happy to have him do that. He describes himself in his own words as a Pharisee of Pharisee. Uh, as far as zeal, he would say, persecuting the church, dragging men and women into uh, prison and, uh, and uh, being responsible uh, for the harm of many, many people simply because they were followers of Jesus Christ. Um, so Acts chapter 9, first of all, the first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2. Meanwhile, meanwhile, reflecting on what had happened in chapter 8, the growth of the church into the area of Samaria and beyond, and specifically the work of uh, the evangelist Philip. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, which is known for being the capital of Syria, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So this is Paul's intention. He's going up, uh, uh, going north, not up, but north to uh, Damascus to be able to uh, interview people, to try to find those who were Christians, uh, try to be able to uh, arrest them and to be able to demonstrate to them uh, that they should never follow this man, Jesus Christ, and be a part of what he calls, what Luke records as the way. Uh, the church is described in a few different ways in Scripture. Uh, the church, of course, that word, the called out ones, ecclesia, um, that describes them. Uh, it is called the way uh, here. 
the pillar and ground of the truth, Paul says about the church in uh, in First Timothy three. So there's uh, there this I think is a a great uh, interesting way of talking about it because the the people still see it as a sect of the Jews. Uh, it's all Jewish uh, Christians. There's no non-Jews that are in the church yet, and so. Uh, Paul is going to Damascus. He has letters from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and he's going to, to basically arrest people for being Christians. He's going to arrest people for being followers of the way, who belong to this uh, way of Christ. And that's a, you know, when you think about it, that's a pretty, uh, pretty challenging description, because what was that way that Jesus talked about? Well, he said, if you're going to be my disciple, and you've got to take up your cross and follow me on that way um, and deny yourself, just as he did. Uh, but, but Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was going up there to arrest people. He was going up there whether they were men or women. Uh, if, they were, uh, if they claimed to be followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus, uh, belonging to the way uh, of this group and this people and this um, supposed Messiah, then Saul, uh, Saul would arrest him. Uh, he is portrayed as a wild and ferocious beast. Again, in chapter 8, he's there uh, when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is killed. Uh, throughout chapter 9, uh, he's going to be described that way. In a moment, he'll be described that way by Ananias. And I love the story of Ananias, and I'm excited that we get to share that today because this poor guy, he's, how would you like to be called upon to go and witness to the, 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 the worst enemy of the church in the name of Christ? Um, a man who had been putting people in jail, having them beaten, perhaps put to death, uh, very much so in the case of Stephen. Um, and yet, and yet that's, that's who we're talking about here. And one of the things that I always think about, and I think it's good for us to reflect on it as we go through this study today, is uh, thinking about someone that you may know that you would think would be the last person to name the name of Christ and to listen carefully to the gospel message, uh, that this would be the last person that you would think would be open and receptive to the message of the love of Christ. That was Saul of Tarsus. And so I think one of the great lessons from his conversion is that we should never say no for anyone. We should always be willing to give people the opportunity uh, to follow after Christ. It's an amazing thing that, um, that, that Saul is, is open uh, to Jesus. And granted, it took extraordinary means, that's for sure, um, but at the same time, he still could have rejected him, and he still could have ultimately rejected him when it became hard, when he began suffering. But again, the difference is the resurrection. The difference is being an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's what carried these men and the, these first century disciples, those stories uh, that whether they had seen him or not, they knew that the firsthand witness's testimony was true. And, and again, uh, we're not very far away from the time that this happened within just a few years, likely. And we're not very far away in distance either. We're still in that area of Palestine. And so for, for Saul of Tarsus to become open to that message, it did take something extraordinary. And yet he still uh, was. Uh, this cruel wolf, 
as John Stott has said in his commentary on Acts, was not only turned into a sheep, but even became a shepherd. Uh, the Apostle Paul, and we think of those words as he writes to disciples in Corinth, and he's talking about all the things that he suffered, uh, the beatings and the imprisonments and the times he was left for dead, uh, the shipwreck, and yet at the same time, what he, what he tells them is uh, one of the worst things above them all is the intense burden that I feel for the churches. Uh, we need to pray for our shepherds today, our elders and others who have such a great concern, ministers and other church leaders who have such a great longing for the Christians and the church to be well and to be faithful. Um, that was what Paul felt. But it begins with him being the enemy of the church, um, the worst enemy that Jesus could have at the moment. And yet Jesus looks around and he says, you, I want you, and I'm going to have you. And he still leaves it up to Saul to decide. But clearly Jesus has plans for this man. And that's why he interrupts his trip to Damascus. And that's why Ananias comes to him and tells him, you've got quite a future ahead of you, my friend, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. And so now we continue on in Acts chapter 9 and read of this conversion. He's on his way to Damascus. He's on his way there with a purpose to continue doing what he's already been doing. Uh, and that is arresting uh, those people who are followers of Jesus Christ, belonging to the way, this church that is still fairly new, and arresting them and putting them in jail. Uh, and so we begin in Acts chapter 9, verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And his life would never be the same. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus interrupts his trip that day, and, uh, and Saul was never the same. As he was getting close to the city of Damascus, um, suddenly a light from heaven flashes around him, and he fell to the ground, knowing that something was up. And then he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The others, they heard the sound, but they didn't see what Saul saw. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Saul asks the question that tells us where he has been in verse 5. Who are you, Lord? He has no idea who this is. Saul thought he was doing right. In fact, in other places, he will say, I was following God to, in a good conscience. I really thought I was doing what was right. And in that sense, he was fulfilling what Jesus had said to his disciples in those chapters towards the end of the Gospel of John when he was meeting with them in that upper room, when he said, look, people are going to beat you and imprison you and even put you to death thinking that they are doing God's will. People still do that today in some parts of the world, and it, it is horrible to think about. Uh, but that's what Saul was doing. And so when Jesus interrupts his trip and he, um, he calls out to him, 
Uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I think Saul really legitimately, genuinely has no idea who this is, but he's going to be told. The answer to his question comes quickly. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Imagine how Saul must have felt, how his heart must have stopped, how he must have fallen to the ground and, and just unbelievable sorrow and fear that this one that he had been persecuting truly was the Son of God, that what they said was true. All the stories that he had heard these disciples say as he arrested them and what he had heard about them saying from others was true. It was true. He never would have believed it, but now he does. How can he not? Saul is a believer from this point on. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. In those accounts in Acts 22 and in Acts 26, we hear Saul asking that question, the second question, not just who are you, Lord, but what do I do? Just like they did on the day of Pentecost, what do we do? Uh, they were cut to the heart, and the answer came back, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In Acts 16, the jailer is going to say, what, what do I do? Uh, how do I get what you have? Even though you are the ones in jail, I'm the one that's really in prison. And he asks them, and they tell him to believe, and they tell him the story, and tell him the gospel. And that very hour of the night, that jailer and his family in Acts 16 are baptized into Christ. Why? Because that's a part of the response of faith. That's a part of that message that was shared. That's a part of what it means to come to believe, truly believe and have faith in Christ. That's what Saul of Tarsus is going to learn as well. Get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now the men traveling with Saul, they're Jews. You know, they're a part of his party. They're likely armed, some of them perhaps. And they hear the sound, but they don't see anyone. It's hard to understand what clearly they could understand. But Saul gets up from the ground, and when he opens his eyes, he's blind. He can't see. And so they have to lead him by the hand into Damascus, this man who had been the prime guy for the Jews, persecuting the church, now can't even walk by himself. He has to be led by the hand. And so they do that, and they go into Damascus, where he is still blind uh, for three days, and he prays and he fasts. He doesn't eat or drink for three days. And we get that, don't we? Imagine being Saul. Imagine what you would do if you had been persecuting the church and persecuting Christians and saying all kinds of horrible things about this Jesus who was crucified as a criminal uh, at the hands of the Jewish leaders and the Romans. And now they're claiming that he's the Messiah. For Saul, it was the highest part of blasphemy that he could imagine. And that's why he was so emotionally connected to this cause of destroying the church. And now it turns out it was true. Turns out it was they were right. And so he's praying and he's fasting because he's wondering, why am I even still alive, I'm sure? Why, how, what kind of chance do I have of being forgiven of this? As we're going to see in a little bit, and as you likely know, he calls himself the worst or the chief of sinners. And so for these three days and three nights, he is praying his heart out. He's fasting. He certainly has repented. 
He certainly believes because he saw the Lord and he heard him. And he has certainly repented because he's praying and fasting. But his sins are still not washed away. And we'll read about that in Acts 22 and here in the rest of Acts chapter 9. So we continue on. He encounters Jesus on the road. In fact, in Acts 26, in this interaction with Jesus, uh, Paul himself adds something that Luke doesn't have here in Acts 26, verse 14, as he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And for those of you that were raised on a farm or are familiar, that you picture that, that farmer just poking those, uh, those cattle or other livestock along and prodding them along so that they'll go where he wants to go. And, and that's how Jesus describes what he has been doing with Saul, prodding him along, trying to get him to go a certain direction. And yet there Saul is trying to push back against those goats, trying to kick against the goats to keep the Lord from moving him that direction. And Jesus says, look, it's impossible for you to do that in Acts 26, verse 14. Um, and, and, you know, we wonder about, um, about Saul's experience here. And we wonder about how this would go on with him, how it was set with him. And we wonder about the impact that it has had, all of those people that he had arrested, um, all of those people that he had imprisoned, perhaps some that he had uh, had beaten or even killed, such as Stephen. And now he, he's thinking back on all of those times during these three days, and he's remembering their great faith, and he's remembering their great humility, and how, in spite of his threats, they would not deny their Lord. Now Saul gets it. Uh, now, now he understands. And, um, and so we're going to get to see him continue uh, on. Um, so we continue on reading uh, in Acts chapter 9, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Again, one of my favorite characters, one of my favorite stories. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, if this were you or me, we would probably say, yes, Lord, we're, I'm going, I'm going. Maybe, maybe. Because we would know what Ananias knows. And I love the honesty of Ananias. I love his uh, fear, his desire. You know, he reminds me of that man in Mark 9 who had the son who had a demon and the disciples couldn't uh, couldn't call him out, and, and he goes to Jesus, and he says, if you can do anything to help us, please help us, and Jesus kind of gets on to him and says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes, and the man says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Well, that's kind of Ananias here, I think. He's looking at Jesus, and he's saying, look, Lord, I, I don't know. Maybe you're not aware of this guy, but let me tell you. And so verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. I love this guy. Lord, just in case you don't know, let me fill you in about this guy from Tarsus by the name of Saul that you're trying to send me to. He is not a good guy. He is not one of us. 
he is going to take old Ananias here and he's going to arrest me and probably have me beaten and put in jail and who knows what. I'm not sure this is what you want to do. Um, I just love Ananias. It's so, so fun to hear him say these things to the Lord of all, <laughs> to Jesus himself. But you know, we've got to give him some, some credit because what he said was true. It's just like that prayer that the disciples prayed after being threatened by the Jewish leaders um, in Acts chapter 4 when they lifted up their hearts to God and they said, Lord, listen, hear their threats. These are, these are the people who crucified Jesus, your son. And now they're threatening us and we know that they can come through on these threats. And so we ask you not for safety, not for protection, but what they asked for in that great prayer in Acts 4 was that your servants could speak the word boldly that we would not cower to those who are trying to cut us off from being faithful to you. Um, I think that's kind of what Ananias is doing here too. You know, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm going to do what you want, but boy, this, is, uh, this scares me. I'm afraid because I know this guy. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. When we get to Acts 22 and Acts 26, we'll see some of the blanks filled in and some more interaction between Saul uh, and Ananias. We'll read a little bit of it here in, in Acts 9. But it's interesting that Jesus just almost, almost as if he cuts him off and he says, Go. And it reminds me of Exodus 3. It reminds me of Moses at the burning bush, uh, having uh, fought that Egyptian and saved that uh, Israeli. And then the next day, uh, the two Jewish, his two brothers fighting and him breaking them up and realizing that the word is out and now his life is not his own and, and flees, runs for his life and spends 40 years away. Uh, having fought, as Stephen had said in his sermon, in Acts chapter 7, having thought that, that everyone would know that God was calling him to deliver them at age 40, uh, now uh, he's away, and for 40 years he's away, and thinking about all these things and contemplating all these things, and then he sees this burning bush that doesn't burn up, and he goes, and it's God, it's the voice of God coming from that bush saying, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, and Moses offers excuse after excuse. Far from being that 40-year-old, arrogant, confident man, now at 80, he's saying, I'm not, I'm not the guy, I don't speak well, they won't know, I don't even know your name, um, how are they going to believe me? All of these things, one excuse after the other that God answers until finally Moses just says, Lord, just, just send somebody else. And that's when God says, go, you're my man. You're going to go. I'll be with you. I'll take care of things, but you're going to go. That's kind of what Jesus does with Ananias here. He says, yeah, I know all those things about Saul. I get it. Go. Go anyway. I want you to go to him, and, and, and I want you to go to him because I've chosen him. He's my chosen instrument, and he's going to preach my message uh, to not only Jews but to Gentiles as well. We, we see that indication here a few times, but nobody really seems to latch on to it until Peter's experience with Cornelius in Acts 10. But God, Jesus tells Ananias, he's going to be my chosen instrument, and he's going, to, he's going to share my message with Jews and Gentiles, with kings and with others. 
Um, but he's also going to suffer. He's going to suffer a lot. And that might be the only thing that Ananias thinks, well, good. Nobody deserves suffering more. Um, but he's going to be the one. He's going to be the one. And just like the conversion of Cornelius and his family uh, is a, a, a great a point where uh, things are so different afterwards for the church, um, this moment is also one of those moments. It will never be the same. After the conversion of Saul, the church has a period of peace, but, um, but Saul begins to preach right off the bat. Um, and so Ananias is told, I want you to go and I want you to tell him everything I have to tell him. And then in verse 17, Ananias went to the house and entered it. Praise be to God for Ananias, this brave, brave soul. He was afraid. He tried to talk Jesus out of it, but he obeys. And that's what we mean when we sing that hymn, Trust and Obey. Anybody can trust when it's easy. Anybody can trust when you're not risking anything. But as we see our country becoming more and more volatile and realize that the possibility of it becoming less and less sympathetic to the Christian cause, we realize that one day this could be us. We could be those who are going to be faced with uh, threats and persecution uh, if we continue in our faith. Will our faith be strong enough? Will we trust God enough to obey him even when we have to pay a price for that obedience? Um, I think we need to be asking ourselves that question now before that time comes, and we pray that it won't ever come. We know it comes for some around the world even right now at this moment. And we also know that it could come for us here in this country um, at, at some time in the not-too-distant future as well. I pray that it doesn't. pray that it doesn't. But I know that's not guaranteed. What Jesus did guarantee is that we would have trouble with the world. But he also shared these words with us so that we could have peace because he has overcome the world. John 16, verse 33. Acts 9, verse 17. Let's keep going, Bill. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples there in Damascus. And so Ananias is obedient. He obeys Jesus, and he goes uh, to Saul. And we see some consequences of this conversion that have been shared before. Saul had a new reverence for God that recognized Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, Saul had a new relationship to the church, beginning right here with Ananias. Later, we'll see Barnabas step in and help him develop that and cultivate that relationship with the church. And we're reminded of what uh, the Apostle John says in 1 John 1, uh, verse 7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all our sins. We have that relationship with Jesus, that vertical relationship, but we also have that horizontal relationship, that we have fellowship with one another. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, has fellowship with the church starting now, beginning with Ananias. And Saul, of course, had a new responsibility. He had a new mission. 
No longer was his mission to try to destroy the church. His mission became to try to spread the gospel and this way that he had been seeking uh, to destroy. Ananias puts his hands on him and he's healed. He begins to see. Um, and he tells him, look, the same one that appeared to you on the road has appeared to me. And that's why I'm here. Uh, Jesus, the Lord, the resurrected Lord. Um, and he calls on Saul to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he calls on Saul um, to be baptized into Christ. Interestingly enough, in spite of seeing the Lord firsthand, in spite of, of uh, praying and fasting, for three days after, after hearing God, Jesus' voice and seeing him on the road, knowing full well, you can't say Saul didn't believe, no one believed more than Saul of Tarsus. Uh, you can't say that he didn't repent, he was praying and fasting for three days. And yet when Ananias comes to him, he has him be baptized. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, as Paul himself is recounting the story, he says this, Ananias came to me and he talked to me about these things and he told me, and now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Up until this time, his sins had not been washed away. Up until this time, he hadn't effectively called on the name of the Lord. Peter in Acts 2, quoting Joel 2, reminds the hearers that what they're saying is the fulfillment of that prophecy, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when that group of 3,000 that want to do what's right are convicted, they have come to faith, but they are still not saved. They are still not forgiven of their sins. They ask that question, what do we do? And Peter tells them in Acts 2, verse 38, to repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They had believed because of everything they had seen uh, in the last couple of months uh, since Jesus had been crucified and then raised from the dead. They were ready to repent, and they did, and 3,000 of them were baptized that day. In this case, Saul of Tarsus is baptized, and he obeys what Ananias told him to do. Uh, he is baptized, and his sins are washed away. They had not been washed away yet. He had he had believed, he had repented, but he had not been baptized. And this is the scripture teaching. This is this is what the Bible says. And if if this is this isn't the way Jesus saves people now, then we might want to ask the question, well why why is that? Uh, how is it different for us than it was for those three thousand in Acts chapter two, than it was for the for Lydia and for the jailer in Acts 16 than it was for the Samaritans, including Simon and that Ethiopian man that Philip baptized in Acts chapter 8. Why would it be different now than it was for Saul of Tarsus? Ananias has him baptized. He baptizes him and he takes some food and he regains his strength. Remember, he'd been praying and fasting for three days, but he is able to take some food and to begin to regain um, his strength. Uh, and so what is the reaction? Um, what is the response? Well, we see that response beginning in verse 20 of Acts chapter 9. At once, at once, Saul began to preach in the synagogues there in Damascus that Jesus is the Son of God right away, right away. He's convicted, and then he is forgiven, and he 
tells people this great story. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? That was no secret. Ananias knew it. Everybody in the church knew it. The Jews all knew it, that that's why Saul had come. And yet now they see him preaching the very message that he had been seeking to destroy. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. How did he do that? I think he did it the same way Peter did in Acts chapter 2, the same way that um, that Stephen did in Acts chapter 7, the same way that Paul would do on his first mission journey with Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, going in the synagogues, taking those Old Testament uh, statements and promises and prophecies such as Isaiah 53 and reminding the Jews of those, of those passages and demonstrating to them how everything is fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, even the fact that he would be crucified and would rise again on the third day. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Of course, right away. Why? Because when your greatest enemy becomes your greatest uh, friend, uh, when, when your greatest friend becomes uh, the worst enemy, then, then you've got to do away with him. There was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Not the first time his life would be saved. Later on, uh, in jail in Jerusalem, uh, he would hear that story, and uh, the Roman official would have him transferred to Caesarea. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. They couldn't wait for him to leave, and they were going to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. This man, who had been one of the most powerful Jews of the time, was now being lowered through a wall, probably at night, uh, and escaping as best he could to save his life. When he came to Jerusalem, verse 26, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. And who can blame them? There was the same thing that Ananias felt. And, and these people were not seeing visions of Jesus saying, no, he's okay, go to him. Who would come in? Who would step in and help? The answer to that question is Barnabas that one that they nicknamed Son of Encouragement because of his willingness to sell property and give everything for the sake of the needy. Um, it would be Barnabas. It would be Barnabas. Uh, verse 27, Barnabas took him, took Saul, and brought him to the apostles. What a dangerous thing to do, to go to him at all, and then to feel like this is such a convicting story that it's safe. And he takes him to the apostles. He could be the worst traitor ever, if it turns out that Saul was just uh, acting like all of this had happened and it hadn't really happened. But Barnabas heard the stories and Barnabas saw the change and Barnabas knew that this was from God. Barnabas took him, Acts 9, verse 27, and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. I'm sure he told them also that his life had been threatened and that's why he had to escape. So Saul stayed with them there in Jerusalem and moved about freely in the city, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, those Jews who, again, were from outside of Palestine, but they tried to kill him. 
When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Already two threats on Saul's life. And he has only been a Christian a very short while. They uh, took him down to Caesarea, that port city on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and they sent him off to Tarsus, his hometown uh, in Cilicia, uh, a ship's voyage from uh, Palestine. Then the church throughout Judea, verse 31, throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. You see, the biggest threat now was their greatest ally. The biggest threat was now the one who was uh, preaching this message of Jesus, stronger than anybody, and whose life was being threatened himself. Rather than being the one who was threatening the lives of others, now Saul of Tarsus was the one who had to fear for his own life. Why? Because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus never promises that we won't face threats, that we won't have trouble. Again, he promises exactly the opposite. But he calls on us to trust in him, to have a faith that is truly faith, a faith that is uh, willing to believe in spite of the circumstances of faith that is willing to confess and to share the story in spite of those who would uh, take issue and who would try to destroy it. That became Saul of Tarsus. Um, and you know, you look back on this and you think of what great heroes these two men are. Ananias, who went to Saul first, and Barnabas, who would later go to Saul and take him in his in his arms, put his arm around him, lead him to the secret place where the apostles were hiding and demonstrate to them that he's a Christian. He has responded. He has seen the Lord just as they had seen the resurrected Lord. And when Paul writes that great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, that's what he says. He says the gospel is the death of Christ, his burial, his resurrection, and his appearances that that there are eyewitnesses now that carry on that message, just as Jesus had said for them to do. Saul of Tarsus becomes one of those. And that's why he is an apostle, because he had that interaction, that special interaction with Jesus. And he is added to the group of the apostles, and he is able to do everything that they can do, even though he says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, lastly to me as one untimely born. Uh, never thought that he deserved that kind of treatment from the Lord. Well, we shift a little bit. I want us to come back to the story of Saul before we close, but this last part of, um, of uh, the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, uh, the last part of this chapter, the, the interest of Luke focuses now on Peter again, after uh, it had been on Saul, and it'll come back to Paul, of course, uh, in Acts, uh, especially in Acts uh, uh, 13 and 14 with the first uh, mission journey. But for now, um, he's going to shift his attention to Peter. In Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 32, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda, still in Judea, um, but away from Jerusalem. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter, said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately he got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. It sounds very much like some incidents in the life of Jesus 
And we're going to see that continue with a very godly woman as well. In verse 36, in Joppa, that port city uh, there on the uh, east coast of, of the Mediterranean Sea, south of Caesarea, still in Judea. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good, always helping the poor. Just as they described, uh, just as Peter would describe Jesus in Acts 10 to Cornelius, he went about doing good and helping and healing all of those. Um, Dorcas, this woman by the name of Tabitha, Greek name Dorcas, she was always doing good and helping the poor. Verse 37, about that time she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Verse 40, Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. She, uh, uh, he took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows. They were the ones who were especially mournful for this woman, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, no doubt, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. So very much like the events in Jesus' life, this is all happening to the Apostle Peter. He had already demonstrated he had great miraculous powers, and there were people coming to him just trying to get near him, just trying to uh, be around his shadow even. And, um, and now he heals this man, and then he goes to this woman. And we're reminded of the incidences in the life of Christ when he raised someone from the dead, the, widow, uh, the widow's son who was uh, from Nain her only son he raised from the dead, and they exclaimed, uh, truly God has come to help his people, as we read about that story in Luke chapter 7. In John 11, Lazarus was raised. Lazarus, come forth, Jesus said, and delivered him to Mary and Martha and to the Jews, uh, his friend, his own friend that he had wept for, even knowing that he was going to raise him from the dead. Um, in John 11. And of course, Jairus's daughter, that, that official that Jesus goes and then takes Peter, James, and John in with him and, um, and heals his daughter, uh, even though they had laughed at him because he had said, no, no, she's not dead. She's, she's just resting. She's just sleeping. And they all knew better. And we know that Tabitha was also dead. And yet Peter raises her from the dead and it becomes known to everyone in the area, and many people believe. That's always the reason for these signs and wonders, not just to do something fancy, which is what Simon's desire was in Acts 8, but to attest, attesting signs and miracles that demonstrate this message is from God. That's why they were speaking in other tongues and languages in Acts chapter 2 after receiving the Spirit. That's why we see these incredible gifts. That's why it happened in Acts 10 with Cornelius. That's, those are all signs and wonders so that the people would know that this is from God. Um, and again, as I said in the lesson on Tuesday, we just don't see anything like these things happening ever again 
in human history. Never, never. Um, claims of some that say some this happened or that happened and it was a complete miracle. Maybe so, maybe not. I, I don't know. But what I do know is that this is the Word of God and that these events happened. And it was quite amazing uh, for these uh, disciples and for all who heard. And many who heard became believers and responded to the gospel. Um, I want us to, um, uh, to finish the lesson today, uh, not in Acts chapter 9, but remembering, uh, take some time this week to read again Acts chapter 9, but also to look at Acts 22 and Acts 26 as Paul himself tells the story and fills in those gaps. We'll get to chapters 22 and 26. It'll be a while, but we'll get there. But I want us to end the lesson with some more of Paul's own words in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as he reflects on this day that we read about here in Acts chapter 9. Uh, just a few years after Jesus had been raised, uh, perhaps as, as five years maybe since the church uh, began, just within a couple of years likely after um, the death of the first Christian martyr Stephen. Uh, this is what Paul uh, does, and he responds, and he is baptized, and he begins preaching at once, and everyone is astounded that the one who is trying to destroy us is now on our side. <laughs> He's our greatest, our greatest spokesperson. Um, Saul never forgot this. Paul never forgot this day, and he would talk about it. When pre pressed by Jewish and Roman officials in Acts 22 and in Acts 26, um, and before Caesar himself, later, at the end of the book of Acts, after its ending in, in Acts 28 under house arrest at Rome, uh, Paul would tell the story. He would tell the story by telling his story. And he would tell about these events that we just read about. And listen to what he says as he speaks to his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 12. He writes this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying, faithful is the word that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The familiar King James Version, I am chief of sinners. But for that very reason, 1 Timothy 1 verse 16, but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a great autobiographical statement from the Apostle Paul. I was the worst of people. I was a persecutor. I was violent. I was seeking to destroy the church. And then I had this experience on the road to Damascus, and I encountered the resurrected Jesus. And a man, a very brave man by the name of Ananias, came to me and said, Saul, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And I began right away to preach the gospel that I had been seeking 
to destroy, to share the story of the one who certainly could have killed me right off because of my sin, yet acted mercifully towards me, and not only gave me salvation, but gave me a call to ministry. Paul himself would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are ministers of reconciliation. It doesn't end with us. We're not just accepting the reconciliation that comes to God through Jesus Christ, but we're also speaking of that reconciliation to others and pleading with them, be reconciled to God. We want the same thing for others that we have experienced ourselves. And Paul will be the first to say, don't give me that line that Jesus could never forgive me. I'm too horrible a sinner. Paul would point to himself and say, no, I'm sorry. That job's already taken. And he forgave me. And if he forgave me, he can forgive you. And if he can give me a part in his mission, he can give you the same thing. What a great, marvelous, wonderful, incredible blessing we have salvation through Jesus Christ and the mission, the great joy of being a part of others, coming to know him, coming to hear that story of Jesus Christ. I think it's good for us to know how to find Acts 9 and Acts 22, 16 and Acts 2 and all of those other great passages. But I hope that you know and learn from this lesson message especially that we tell the story the same way Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, told the story. We tell the story by telling our story. Yes, let's tell others about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. What a great story it is. But let's also tell them about our story. I can tell them about that day in San Antonio when my family studied with Ronnie Clayton, that very faithful gospel preacher at Lackland Terrace Church of Christ. And that night, uh, after the end of that Sunday night service, my sister and my dad and I were baptized and my mom was restored. I can tell that story. And you have a story too. You have a story of when you came to faith, when you called upon the name of the Lord, when you were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and had them washed away, just like Saul of Tarsus. I pray God's greatest blessing upon you and that his word will always go forth, this great gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ for all. And so we'll end with 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. Paul erupts in doxology, a song of praise. How can you not? How can you not? Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.